This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, incorporating the Catholic faith into everything they do. To find out if Seton is right for your family, go to seatonhome.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, you are eager to have make this podcast because after this podcast, you are going on, um, not vacation in that you're not going to be away from work, but you are heading out of town for a little end of summer time. I I, I am. I'm going to go see some family, and I'm not, as you say, going on vacation yet. Right. I am going on vacation before the end of the summer. It's going to be right up at the death, but I'm going to do it uh, because the consequences, if I don't, domestically will be severe. In fact, um, you are going, to, but you are going to take next week some time to do some very interesting uh, reporting that I'm excited about, and we'll talk about th- uh, that. We'll probably talk about on the show next week. You're giving me this look like you don't want me to telegraph your reporting. No, I'm giving you this look like are you about to just back me into? picking something up that I didn't know I was going to do by no, announcing no, no, you're going to do some reporting next week. And we'll talk about this in a minute, because what we're going to do on this episode of the show is we're going to talk about something that everybody's talking about. And then we're going to talk about something that nobody's talking about. And um, both of them are serious and sober subjects. So we're going to have a conversation about serious and sober stuff today, because everybody, um, everywhere I go these days in clerical circles, probably not like, you know, I dropped my kid off at school this morning for the first day of school. Probably not like that, but everywhere I go in sort of clerical or ecclesiastical circles these days, people are paying attention to the really um, horrific situation of Father Alexander Crow in Mobile, Alabama. Is that your experience as well? Yes, although perhaps it's more I could say the situation of Father Crow not being in the Archdiocese of Mobile, as he is currently not. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's a whole thing, um, and it's not good. It's not good. So the situation, if you have not been paying attention to this, is that uh, in late July, the Archdiocese of Mobile, Alabama, announced that a priest named uh, Alexander Crow had um, abandoned his assignment in the Archdiocese and was therefore not to um, present himself for present himself for ministry, present himself as a priest, and did not have ecclesiastical faculties. Um, it subsequently emerged that Father Crow had gone to Europe. Um, the priest is thirty. And he had gone to Europe with, first people were saying Spain, and then it became clear that he'd gone to Italy with an 18-year-old girl who had graduated this spring from the uh, the local Catholic high school in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, ostensibly, the initial media report said that he had ostensibly gone there with a plan of some kind to perform an exorcism upon her. Now, this Alexander Crow is not, we confirmed with the diocese, um, the Archdiocese of Mobile, not the diocesan exorcist of the Archdiocese of Mobile, um, nor even trained for that kind of very specialized and serious ministry, which actually does require serious amounts of training, um, and therefore not um, empowered to perform an exorcism in the name of the church or on behalf of the church in the manner in which an exorcist actually does so. Um but he nevertheless, uh, the story went, had gone off to Euro- to Europe with this 18-year-old girl ostensibly to perform an exorcism upon her, and her parents had expressed extraordinary concern about this, as you would expect that parents would. Um, it emerged this week uh, that there was more to the story, as of course everyone knew that there was, that, there, that um, Father Crow had um, written a letter to a friend of his in which he said that he and the girl had discerned that the Lord wanted them to go to Europe and 
that Jesus was calling him to do this, and he was abandoning the Archdiocese Mobile, but not his priesthood, that he would continue, that his priesthood belonged to Christ and Christ alone, and he would continue to exercise his priesthood, but was leaving the Archdiocese not to return in order to follow what he framed as the Lord's call. That letter was released by the Mobile County Sheriff's Office to local media. They released another letter as well. And that letter, and by the way, I probably should have said this, but if you usually listen to the Pillar Podcast with your kids, you shouldn't listen to this episode of the Pillar Podcast with your kids because this stuff is um, terrible. Um, that letter, that second letter that was released by the Mobile County Sheriff's Office uh, was written Valentine's Day 2023. We confirmed that with sources close to the case um, when the girl with whom he had gone to Europe was 17 and still a high school student. And in that letter, Father Crow identified himself as what, Ed? Uh, he described himself as her husband. He did indeed describe himself as her husband. Also her father. Mm-hmm. And he called her the prettiest girl who ever lived. Mm-hmm. And um, the most beautiful thing he'd ever held in his hands. Apart from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right. he was right. keen to point out because Father Crow is a deeply religious and sacramentally aware man, so we're led to believe. Um, he, yeah, I mean, it is it is clear that what has happened here is there is a cleric who has seduced a schoolgirl and induced her to run away with him. Um, more worryingly still, if such a thing could be imagined is that it looks like this could be a pattern of behavior on Crow's part. The yeah, according local to sheriff's the department. Yeah. yeah, the local sheriff's department has said that actually they've received a report that on a school trip in June of this year, another student was seen coming out of Crow's hotel room after one in the morning. And as anyone's grandmother will tell you, nothing good happens after one in the morning. Um, there is no reason for a high school student to be coming out of a priest's hotel room at one in the morning. So, you know, that, that is a, that is something that the local sheriffs have announced that raises questions to put it mildly. So we have a cascading situation now where obviously the thing that the family of this girl are most concerned about is getting her home. Um, There is the other problem of getting crow to come home and face justice, civil and canonical. And there are also all sorts of wider ripple effect issues that should be discussed around how uh, Crow got himself in this position. And by this position, I don't mean having fled to Italy with a teenager in tow. I mean how he was able to put himself in a position in priestly ministry where he is able to engage in this sort of behavior and this sort of spiritualized uh, form of, of grooming, I would call it. Uh, that he seems to have been engaged in. So first things first, the very practical. Um, the priest's faculties have been, um, he, he is not yet subject to a penalty canonically, which is to say that his his faculty to hear confessions and his other faculties for priestly ministry have been withdrawn by the Archdiocese of Mobile and um, in accord with Canon 223, um, he has been restricted from presenting himself as a priest. There is a very wonky question that I would raise about, um, as you know, the new book six, we may have talked about this on the show before. One of the things is that Father Crow was prevented from wearing clerics by a decree of the diocesan bishop. Um, as you know, um, the new book six of the Code of Canon Law establishes a prohibition against wearing clerics as a penalty. 
Um, in as much as it is established as a penalty, the question has been raised by some canonists, well, doesn't that mean that it can't it can't be a prohibition which is enacted administratively? I, I don't think that is the case. Um, no, lots of things are established. Lots as of things penalties. which are penalties can also be temporary temporary measures um, of uh, of administrative restriction, as a prudential peace yeah. precept. Yeah, that's right. Um, but if that were to become a permanent condition, it would indeed need to be the result of a penalty, um, by virtue of the fact that it's now been established as a penalty. So he he's in a sort of temporary situation of the archdiocese saying that he can't present himself as a priest where clerics he doesn't have any faculties, etc. The archdiocese has said, in fact, the archbishop said they intend to pursue his laicization, and they've started a clock on him for a kind of the easiest mode of laicization, which is to say they started a clock um, by virtue of a decree um, uh, uh, establishing when he abandoned his ministry uh, in July, such that six months after that, I suppose that would be at the end of January, I don't know, let's see, August, September, October, November, December, January, yeah, at the end of January, they could declare formally that he had been illicitly absent from his ministry for six months and then for therefore initiate uh, a penal procedure to uh, end in his laicization. It would have to be a trial because I don't think you can, I don't think that, well, would it have to be a trial or could it be an administrative penal procedure at the time? No, mass? it'll be an administrative penal procedure because the, the relevant penal law is basically a codification of what used to be the special faculties I just given to the. Remember, if you could impose the fa the sentence of the, of lay cessation by means of an administrative penal process, the dicastery for clergy can can right, but this can, would be a diocesan. Yes. But this would be a diocesan procedure. So no, I don't know if at the diocesan. I would imagine that they will be going yeah. through the dicastery for clergy with this. Oh, I would think that they would just do the trial in their own diocese. At any rate, they're going to initiate a penal process. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure why they would have to involve clergy, but they're going to initiate. I'm going to Google that in the background. Keep going because I don't want us to get completely bogged down. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, it's incidental. In six months, they're going to begin a penal process, which is designed to affect his laicization. Um, there are other means by which he might be laicized. If it were proven that he had um, had sexual contact with a minor, he could be laicized for having committed the crime of sexual assault against a minor. Um, you can't but commit sexual assault against a minor in the church's law if you have sexual contact with a minor. And thus, if it can be proven that he had sexual contact with a minor, which he alluded to in his letter in which he talked about her desire to make out with him, so to speak, and I'm quoting him there, um, that he could be laicized for that purpose. He could also be laicized under the new provisions of Book 6. I, I didn't mention this in an analysis I wrote to this effect, but he could also be because it's so far down the cascade of what I think they will do, but he could also be laicized in principle um, for the crime of having committed um, uh, sexual abuse in the context of a, of, a, of, a, of a relationship of power because he presented himself effectively as her spiritual director, an abuse of, abuse of office or a relationship. Um, and if he had a formal I, role at the high I'm school. I'm sure that if, stuff. well, part of the, and by the way, just to sort of close the earlier parenthetical that I opened, no, you're entirely right. Um, it's not a reserved elect in the code, and now that they've incorporated the special faculties, yeah. former special faculties in the law, it's perfectly possible they could have a penal trial at the diocesan level would go that but way. But could so they? I don't right. know if they could have an administrative penal process. I, canon law professor at CUA who listens to this show, who's very good about processes, if you want to let us know, you let us know, or any other canonist who knows. But the point is they would be initiating a penal process. Um but, Hang on, I'm but in addition my, to, I don't know, I don't have a ready parallel. So yeah, interesting question. So yeah, um, but thirteen ninety five three uh, in the new book six, a cleric who by force, threats, or this is the relevant section, abuse of his authority, commits an offense against the sixth commandment of the Decalogue, or forces someone to perform or submit to sexual acts, is to be is to be punished. Um, There's almost penalties. I, 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 I mean, dismissal. I have no specific information to see to stand this up, but just the fact pattern that we have currently, I would be shocked if there was not also abuse of the sacrament somewhere involved in this. 
Um, I find it impossible to believe that this guy wasn't hearing this girl's confession and abusing the sacramental form as well. It, it certainly seems likely. Um, so again, what the di- what the archdiocese has done is set up the easiest path to laicization, um, the abandonment path, while still having seemingly to itself a number of other paths. Yes. I mean, the, and, and by easiest path, what we can say about the path that of, is- The path of least canonical resistance. Not just least canonical resistance, but the lowest burden of proof. I mean, yeah. to establish that a guy has abandoned ministry, you just have to say, he isn't here, and he hasn't been here for six months. He hasn't been here. We he sent his decree telling him to come back, and he didn't do it. Period. Right. Yeah. So everything else that we are discussing, you know, if you have a penal trial, you've got to have, and you should have, due process. You should have presentation of proofs. You've got to argue the case. You have to establish it. And, you know, I I have for myself, and I've said this, um, I have a long-standing bee in my bonnet about the church sort of meeting the minimum standard required to get a guy out when there are multiple accusations and that I think that this is generally speaking not in the service of justice that if someone is accused of doing all sorts of horrendous things you don't just say well we can laicize him for effectively getting out like effectively getting out on tax evasion and the important thing is that we get him and we get him out we get him out and not actually answer for the serious things that they have the more serious things that they have done although you know it's worth saying in this case I totally get why the Archdiocese of Mobile wants to go this way because this is a gigantic scandal and it's a scandal for all of the serious things that Crow has done and is alleged to have done and everything else. And the immediate address to that scandal is from their perspective, I would imagine we have to get this guy out of ministry now. Yeah. And out of the clerical state. Yes. But it's the same, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, there's a parallel to a thing that we talk about often, which is um, you and I have expressed frustration and expressed sort of the, the, disappointment of the Holy See at the at the conclusion of a Vos Estes Lex Mooney investigation, whether in Crookston, Minnesota, or Knoxville, Tennessee, or any number of other places, um, permitting a bishop around the world, permitting a bishop to resign um, rather than seeing him removed from office. And the Holy See does it because that is, for them in that circumstance, effectively the path of least resistance, the least sort of administrative burden. If the man is willing to resign and uh, with pressure put on him, it's it's the easiest thing to do. We've expressed frustration about that because we've often said, look, justice exists to repair scandal. Um, you know, a criminal justice process exists to repair scandal and allowing someone to, to, uh, to resign doesn't, um, doesn't repair that scandal. And, and the same thing could be said here. Um, a criminal justice system exists to repair scandal and getting somebody on abandonment of assignment when he's done so many other things, um, doesn't in itself sort of repair that scandal. In fact, it could be, people who don't sort of understand that process, it could seem to perpetuate it. Like, oh, the the, th- the worst thing that that guy did was abandon his assignment. Boy, the church is crazy, blah, blah, blah. You can take a girl to Europe, but you better not, you better be back by Monday, whatever. Um, you know, you could see how people might be scandalized by that if they didn't understand it. And at the same time, it does seem clear that from the perspective of the archdiocese, it is imperative to see him move from the clerical state as quickly as possible because there are many people who will be waiting for that as well. And because a penal trial could take quite some time. I mean, penal trials can well, for more than a year. Functionally impossible without him there. I mean, that's the other thing to bear in mind here is the diocese. Well, of he the, could be the cited and then... I'm sorry? It, w- what would happen if you were cited and he didn't respond? Oh, well, I mean, you could proceed with some kind of process without him, but without either the, in this case, the criminal and the victim are currently neither of them present. So gathering proofs and, you know, 
yeah, progressing the case would be very, very difficult without him. But of course, that doesn't oh, mean and that- especially, less so without him as without her. If she, if 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 the if the charges that he, um, you know, abused his office for the purpose of sexual abuse, whether she was a minor or not, or abused his authority for the purpose of sexual misconduct, whether she's a minor or not, or committed sexual misconduct when she was a minor, and she's not willing to attest to that fact, then you have to get other external fact, you know, other external proofs. Right. And that's not, that, that that could prove, it could be the kind of thing where if they went for the most sort of satisfying charge from the perspective of the retributive aspect of justice or the restorative aspect of justice, you'd be waiting. I, I mean, I've, I've been involved with penal cases that have gone on for four or five years. And I don't think that's that unusual. No, and it isn't to say it isn't worth doing. Um, but what I would say also is this: is it's important that you know, assuming that the guy might not come back, or at least might not come back anytime soon, or that say he he does eventually come back, and we should talk in a minute about what I think will happen with that. Um, but assuming, for example, he does come back and he ends up answering civil charges as well, which is entirely which, possible. The in local fact, sheriff's the sheriff said they're anticipating filing criminal charges against yeah. him. So let's say he comes back and he finds himself um, in in the local civil court and the canonical decision is taken to, well, we will defer a canonical process until the same charges have been answered in the civil forum, which is perfectly normal. You don't have sort of parallel criminal trials running civil and canonical at the same time the church tends to say we will we will do the canonical criminal trial once the civil trial is over because then we will also have all of the evidence gathered in the process of the civil trial and everything else that we can use and incorporate into the acts of the canonical trial and we can and we don't that. want the canonical trial act of being subpoenaed by a prosecutor also because of the reverse we don't want the president religious liberty for the so, sake of religion all of that um, and but at the same time they want to be able to get him out of the clerical state which means you got to start the clock now and if he comes back between now and the end of January, and they want to start a canonical criminal prosecution against him for another crime, they can do that. That option's open to him. But if he doesn't show up, or if he does, and opening a canonical trial into something that he's already facing civil charges for doesn't seem like a prudent option, they can still carry on with the abandonment of ministry right. process right. in the interim and still get him out of the clerical state. It's effectively a documentary process. I mean, it's not formally speaking a documentary process but the proofs are documentary yeah or maybe there you're not it's it, it's i suppose that formally may i don't know what the, what formally makes it a documentary process but the proofs are documentary uh, a, a documentary process is one in which no person ever has to show up you can just say here's the paperwork you don't need to hear from anybody so for example if you say oh yeah okay but the reason this wouldn't be a document the reason this isn't formally speaking a documentary process is because he still has the right of defense computer- yeah, and imputability and these kinds of things, which could be raised. Yeah. yeah. But it's the proofs are documents. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's Father Crow and how the Archdiocese might handle Father Crow. As we said, Father Crow is, according to the sheriff, likely to face criminal charges, and that will determine how the Archdiocese proceeds. There is another set of questions, a broader set of questions. There's a broad set of questions about sort of how he got through seminary and what manner of man is this and these kinds of things. But first, there's a kind of immediate set of questions for the archdiocese, and they're this. According to the sheriff, Father Crow might face additional criminal charges or might face criminal charges because when he went on a school trip uh, two months ago, and as far as I can tell, Ed, and I've been, I, I cannot say this verifiably with absolute certitude, but I have been doing some digging into this and trying to talk with some people. And as far as I can tell, that was a trip to Rome. I believe, 
I, I, I can, I can show that Father Crow was in Rome two months ago, and I believe that it was on a school trip, for a variety of reasons, and I think I probably will be able to demonstrate that at some point. But at any rate, Father Crow was on a school trip. According to the sheriff, a young girl was seen coming out of his room after one thirty in the morning. A minor. Um, the presumption being that the sheriff was implying that some sexual misconduct had taken place, and um, the school. On July 28th, when all this emerged in the paper and down in Mobile, the high school principal issued a statement saying, yeah, Father Crow in 2021 used to come here and he spoke at some theology classes and he heard confessions, but he's not an employee of the school and has not been an employee of the school. And the statement said explicitly, has not chaperoned any school trips. Um, I can read you the statement if you like. We are all stunned by the recent news regarding Alex Crow. Contrary to what was reported, Mr. Crow was never employed by McGill Toolin Catholic High School. We welcome our priests to visit theology classes and hear confessions when they can. Mr. Crow uh, did visit some theology classrooms and hear confessions during that period, September through during the period of September through December 2021. He also celebrated one school mass this, that year. Uh, here we go. He has not chaperoned any school trips or retreats. We'll continue to pray for the families involved and are looking forward to the start of another year. Well, here's the deal. The sheriff said Father Crow was on a school trip. Either it was not precisely a school trip, the parents kind of organized the trip, but they, everybody was clear. And I don't know if this happened in your high school, but it happened in mine. Like parents would organize a trip that kids could go on, but you and I went to very different say, kinds of high schools. Okay. Parents would organize a trip that kids could go on, but the parents would say, but the school would say, this is not a school trip. Um, this is not a school sponsored trip. As it happens, members of the debate club are going to. Washington, D.C., parents have arranged the supervision, and one teacher is attending in, outside of work, but we have issued a document which says that this is not a school trip. Is, it's, those kinds of things I'm aware of happen because, again, I saw them in my own high school. It is possible that um, this was a trip of students organized by parents or organized by students even that father attended, in which case the high school was being semantically accurate for the purpose of, I suppose, not transparency, but um, self-protection, institutional self-protection, at least it could be charged, um, or the high school was not aware that mm, Father Crow had gone on this sort of not school trip that was a school trip. Um, but at the very least, if this trip that the sheriff alludes to is connected to the high school and the high school staff was aware of that, they have not been transparent at the very least, right? Um, it's possible they weren't aware of it. It's possible they're extenuating circumstances. But there is a question here that raises concern. I'd be inclined to apply the J.D. Flynn standard of interpretation to that statement um, because you are in all matters penal, and often I'm deeply supportive of you in this regard, uh, an extreme literalist when it comes to language. So if the language says, has not chaperoned, that tells me the school is saying he's not chaperoned any school trips. now. We Lots have him. Of, it's possible to say we have him as a chaplain, but not a chaperone. I mean, is that or what you're he suggesting? just tagged along, and you know, he wasn't organizing it. He wasn't one of the chaperoning adults. You know, it's always nice to have a priest along on these things, especially if you're going to Rome. Um, so that's possible. I don't know. I, I, I but or it's I, this, possible that it wasn't a school trip, and the sheriff is still unpacking. All, all you of know, that is possible. But, many things are possible, but it is there is a question there. Well, here's another question: Where? Canonically, um, 
should a penal trial be held? What is the competent form? Uh, the diocese of where the delict took place. And so if a delict took place uh, in the diocese of Rome, for example, then it would be appropriate for the um, for the trial to take place in Rome as well. Yes. So there's that. Um, I, I'm sure that we will, I'm sure more information will eventually become available on this. I don't immediately have any expectation, but I do have a great deal of understanding for why the school doesn't want to say a whole lot in public because this guy wasn't one of their employees and yet this is on their doorstep. So I totally get why they're like being sure. But you, you can see at the same time that there is a question there. Sure. And amongst the other questions are if this was seen, it was seen by someone and who did the seeing and, and did that come forward prior to this? Now, maybe it was a kid who saw it and didn't think, and didn't think anything of it or didn't understand it. And then after all this came out said, actually, I saw this. I mean, we just don't know, we don't but know. it's possible that someone saw it and some adult saw it and didn't report it, in which case that would have been possible that some adult saw it and did report it. It's and- possible that some adult saw it and did report it. And that goes to another question, which is that uh, sources have told me that there had been complaints in the Archdiocese of Mobile about Father Crow. Father Crow had a very keen interest in the, has, I suppose, a very keen interest in the demonic and uh, spiritual warfare and deliverance and all these things, you know, as we said, not the exorcist of the diocese are trained as such, but you might call it an amateur interest. Yeah. Folks have told me, and he's appeared on all, all these kind of podcasts. He's not an exorcist one. He's not an exorcist, but he plays one on YouTube and podcast. Yeah, that's right. So sources have told me that parents had complained about him talking too much about this with kids and in ways that seemed like, um, unsettling or inappropriate to discuss with, with young people, with teenagers. And, and that, Tied up in that might be his popularity with young people and concerns about boundaries. So there is a question about whether or not there were issues raised to the diocese, concerns raised to the archdiocese, and if the archdiocese adequately addressed them. And I'll be honest, if there is the penumbra of that, I mean, if there is the suggestion that the archdiocese had information and didn't act upon it appropriately or had information that might have prevented this or had information that Father Crow had been inappropriate with other children, I would imagine that the parents of the girl who have expressed frequently that they're concerned for themselves and for other young people, I would imagine the parents might make a vos sti selex mundi complaint. I mean, I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know if there's any substance that we just have not, we don't have the kind of facts that would give us answers about that. But I wouldn't be surprised if there ends up being a Vosestis complaint about how this was handled. Uh, maybe. There's a lot we don't know yet. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised if. And again, I'm not saying substantively I have reason to think that the Archdiocese has mishandled this, but there are questions about what the Arch... There are unanswered questions to date about what, what the Archdiocese or the Archbishop knew or didn't know, and I think that's going to happen. Well, or did or didn't do. And I, I mean, look, yeah. I, I... My experience and my opinion for what it's worth, and I, I have some experience with clerical disciplinary issues, you could say, um, is that if a guy is popping off on podcasts and YouTube and you know seems to have self-defined a ministry with teenagers and likes to talk about the demonic that a lot. That in itself is a red flag that mo- many That is a would. big old red flag. And when people start Deal. playing Exorcist on TV, that is a big red flag for me. But at the same time, I don't know that it's fair to a chancery to say, well, this guy is doing that, so you really should have seen coming that he was going to start abducting teenagers. Um, yeah. 
I, I, I don't know. That's a, maybe that is a leap that you that is reasonable to make these days, and I'm open to that argument. I'm not saying that I immediately get there, though. That's all I'm saying. Um, but yeah, this this whole thing is a problem, and it. I mean, it's it, these things. You know, they're they they come in cycles. They come in and out of fashion. Problematic cultures develop within the church. Problematic sort of self styled ministries rise up in the church from time to time, and. And I think this this kind of weird sidecar deliverance ministry, which I get questions about all the time from people, because for one reason or another, first of all, it seems to be a, a very American or North American centered cultural phenomena, and also people tend to like to try and drag the Freemasons into it a lot, and so I get phone it calls. Was, by the way, the locus of a, a I think that um, intercessory prayer um, for spiritual healing is real and important, but it yes. was, by the way. The locus um, deliverance ministry was also the locus of abuse for Father um, David Morier, and um, right. But there's a there's a difference between um, a healthy appreciation for intercessory prayer and a style of ministry that becomes primarily about convincing people they're either possessed or subject to some sort of ill-defined and not found in that's my point. And that kind of thing can become the locus of abuse, as we saw in the Morier case. Well, I, I, in some of these things, and like I said, I I get phone calls about this from priests, from other canonists, from concerned Catholics who bump up against this sort of thing, and they're told stuff like, "I'm I'm really," or I get told by them stuff like, "I'm really worried about you know my family because my grandfather was a Freemason, and I'm worried that there's a generational curse on my family that's you know affected the validity of my baptism," and that sort of stuff makes my blood boil yeah. because. First of all, there's no such thing as a generational curse. Second of all, there's nothing in what the church teaches about Freemasonry that has anything to do with curses or the occult or any of that. You know, there there were six popes who wrote eight encyclicals over 200 years condemning the Freemasons, including and most prominently Leo the Thirteenth, who wrote the Saint Michael the Archangel prayer, who never mentioned a word of that. And like, if that was an issue, don't you think that they would mention it? Um, so I I see all this stuff all the time, and it is it is faddish and not based in. The teaching of the church. And so that for me is a gigantic red flag to begin with. But the other problem is when it creates a relationship that by its nature is Gnostic and, and an imbalance of power. And in that sense, it's abusive that if you have a priest telling a teenager, well, I'm worried you, you know, you, you need an exorcism, you know, and don't get me wrong. There are minor exorcisms in the church that every priest can perform and everything else, and they have their place. And I'm not anyway, but that's not what we're talking about here. And if you start getting into a situation where you're telling people, oh no, there's there's something in you that only I can get out, and uh, we got to get on a plane. Like there's there's no positive spin to put on that. So that, in general terms, as a sort of culture of ministerial abuse, there's that problem. Then there's the particular thing of the the reliance on talking about demons and you know this particular flavor of sort of ministerial abuse, right. which, as far as I'm concerned, this is one of those as the kids on Twitter say, "F around and find out." Yeah, like yeah, you want to you, and this is what bothers me. Ed, there's there is there can be a sensationalism, a sensationalization of the demonic that is exploited with regularity that Catholics need to be attentive to. In this kind of spiritual abuse, um, which sensationalizes the demonic and makes it kind of alluring and attract, like spooky, and 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 we want to know and we want to hear an exorcist talk on YouTube about all these bad things. We have to be careful about that. We have to be careful. I have said this before, and I think it's true. 
I think that Catholic media need to be careful about the way that they talk about exorcisms because mm-hmm. I see the way in which sort of exorcism content is used in an exploitive way to generate traffic because it's oh, attractive to people. Exorcist and porn is a real thing in Catholic media. Yeah, because it, is. it gets like, clicks. Need, it boosts the ratings. And and the problem is um, not only does it uh, not only does that kind of sensationalism create the venue for this kind of um, abuse that we see in this case or the Moria case. Not only is that true, uh, not only do you invite, do I think you dev- invite demonic reality into your life by being cavalier or by sort of being intrigued to know and know and know, do I think you have to be really careful about that just with your own spiritual guard? But also, the devil tempts most of us in these extremely banal ways, the world and the flesh, pride, gluttony, porn, gossip, envy, Instagram addictions, Twitter fights. The devil derails us with such banal crap that we have to guard ourselves against. And there's a way of losing sight of that temptation if we come to think that the demonic activity in the world is mostly ookie-bookie Halloween stuff, and that that stuff is mostly dealt with instead of being dealt with by a commitment to an ordinary, serious, spiritual life of the sacraments and prayer and fasting and almsgiving that is mostly dealt with in the realm of, again, and I think exorcisms are real, and I think deliverance prayer is real, but, but most of our fight against the devil happens in the realm of the life of grace the sa- and the sacramental economy and ordinary mortifications and scripture, the church's prayer, and we can get distracted from that stuff by the alluringness of the, you know, kind of oogie-boogie demonic stuff. And I think that in itself is a kind of devil trick. Well, I really do. That, that's my point, is let's just presume the best that we possibly can and say, Crow started off all of this stuff with a kind of misdirected but otherwise sincere zeal and pastoral concern, but was shockingly immature and cavalier about it all. How did that work out exactly? Yeah. You become the monster. That's that's what happens. People are talking a lot about how Alex Crow got through seminary, whether there were any red flags. We don't know. You know me, I love to investigate that stuff. I love to ask around. I don't we don't have uh we don't have yet and maybe we will maybe we won't but we don't yet have the sort of how Alex Crow got through seminary or whether the there's a there's a rumor out there that the faculty the formation faculty of the seminary didn't recommend him for orders and he was ordained anew. I honestly don't know. I mean and I I would I say that disappointed in myself because I like to know and I told you Ed, when I don't know something it makes me feel like I'm losing my edge or something or something like that. Um but there are a lot of unanswered questions about that that we just don't know. And all of those questions are important. You know, I interviewed a seminary professor a couple of years ago about another priest who engaged in really terrible misconduct. Do you remember the priest? Gosh, I hate talking about this kind of stuff as if that's the ordinary experience of the priesthood. But do you no, remember it's our the ordinary priest? experience of journalism. It's, right, exactly. But do you remember the priest in Louisiana who did very bad things with a prostitute in yes, his church? Yes, right. two. Two prostitutes. Yeah. Two prostitutes, yeah. Um, I interviewed um, a seminary professor after that about how that guy got through seminary. And, I remember. And the professor said, and I understand this very much, like we that guy was mediocre and non um, 
you know, sort of didn't stand out in seminary. And he was also personally weird. Yeah. He said he was weird, but his grades were fine. They weren't great. And he didn't sort of stand out as it being anything one way or another. And, um, mediocrity was sufficient to pass. And we were encouraged to sort of just move people forward. And he said very seriously that culture needs to change. I, I don't know the extent to which that's true. I've heard people say that um, Alex Crow didn't have a lot of friends at Mindrads. If you know more about all of this, you know how to find me. And I care about reporting it because I think diagnosing this stuff helps. But my guess is that he didn't stand out. He seemed a bit odd. He, But nothing sort of jumped out as he told his formators, you know, too much in one way or another and was asked to leave. And, uh, and that was that he, uh, you know, maybe there were giant red flags and maybe the formation faculty didn't recommend him. And I'd be interested to know that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't the case either. I wouldn't be surprised if the formation faculty expressed concern and the bishop said, I've got to ordain the guy, you know, or I think you're wrong. I mean, nothing, none of those things would surprise me, but the most common situation that I have come across with priests like this is that in seminary, they kept their weirdness to themselves and they kept themselves to themselves and this stuff developed over time, and that was sufficient for it to go unchecked. And that in itself is a problem. But but again, if you know more, I think diagnosing this stuff is important, and I think it helps the church to reform itself, and I would be glad to hear from you. I think there's also a problem inherent in assigning young priests in their 20s, even in their early 30s, um, to high school formation. I completely youth. disagree. You think there are no problems inherent in that? I think there. I think that things like this are very bad. I think it would be a mistake to say, therefore, we won't assign young priests to the place where they. I can didn't have say the therefore we won't. Impact. I said there are problems inherent in doing it. I think there are problems inherent in doing it, but I'd be worried I've, about. I've had too many cases. Putting Crow aside for a moment, I've had too many cases that I've dealt with as a canonist where it is a good guy, a good priest, young guy, first couple of years out of seminary, the bishop says, you're young, you're cool, you know how to, you know, you, you're down with the kids, you know how to to speak the, to the youngs, you, you can, you can, you're down with the youths, I'm going to put you in, you know, a kind of chaplaincy or give you a sort of roving ministry, you know, do young people stuff. And again, I'm not saying that that means you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying but often without due attention being paid to the fact that there is an inherent risk to that, which is if you have a young guy, new out of seminary, reasonably freshly ordained, doesn't have a lot of years under his belt in the clerical state, isn't accustomed to all of the temptations and pressures and loneliness and isolations and everything else, and that is also in his priesthood still very immature, throwing him in with a bunch of teenagers all the time, that, there, that, is, a, that is a massive vector of risk. Which, okay, I don't disagree with that. I, I take back, I completely disagree. But I also think it is true that a young priest can have a profound impact on the life of a young person. And I'd hate to be so afraid of that. As oh, to I don't disagree. Say, I, I, I don't want to say that every newly ordained priest should be in the nursing home for 10 no, years. I mean, no, 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 no. Not saying that. Not saying I, that. I, but, I think it would be risk averse to have every young priest outside of the nursing home for 10 years. Maybe I'm fine with it. I don't know. But I, 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 I'm not, again. I want to be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, therefore, you shouldn't have cool young father dealing with the youngs. Or just ordinary young father, yeah. I'm I'm not saying that. I'm just saying- We have to be vigilant. We have to be hyper-vigilant for the priest's sake, as well as for all of the wider safe environment, everything else. Because if a priest is feeling 
simultaneously isolated and new in his priesthood and still finding his feet and everything, and at the same time is the subject of suddenly, you know, quite sincere and well-intentioned, I don't want to say adulation, it's too strong a word, but respect and is put on a pedestal and seen to be someone important who, you know, is being asked for answers about all sorts of things in life. You know, he's new in this ministry. He needs to have proper support when he's put in a role like that. I don't know if that was the case in, with Crow. I'm saying, but this, but in is a general rule. When I see um, a guy, you know, they always say that was it the is it the five year itch they have uh, that most guys who end up leaving the priesthood do so in the first five years mm-hmm. after ordination. The number of cases I have where guys are are leaving in the first five years of ministry, yeah, and they're not necessarily doing it willingly or they're being helped out the door. There's usually an aspect of this in that. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I want to take back. I completely disagree. I think I just, I, I think I reacted strongly to it because I see that translated too much into, and therefore it would be a mistake to have young priests teach high school, which I think is important and good, or therefore it would be a mistake to have young priests involved in which things, which I think are good. But it is true. I mean, the things you're saying are true and it's hard on priests. That, that is hard on priests and actually maybe nursing home ministry in their early years would not be as hard on them. Um, I don't know. Um, I tend to see priests struggle at di- at a few points in their life. The first couple of years is one, and I think a lot of young priests will tell you that now. Death of their parents. The death of their parents is exactly what I was about to say. Um, especially the death of our, their parents if it's followed by a transfer, um, you know, or a big change, a big a, another big change in their life. Um, and then you know it doesn't get talked about in a, 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 as often, but um, I know a lot of guys who really struggle around retirement age because they don't know how to be. One, maybe they haven't saved enough and that kind of thing, and the diocesan situation isn't good for them. But two, they haven't saved, they haven't prepared enough to be um, out to pasture, so to speak. And so I, I know guys who can. Can I advance an unpopular opinion? Yes. Okay. And you can have Kate cut all this if you decide that I'm not allowed to have his opinion, because I'm clear I frequently have opinions. Like, that is going to offend so many people that we like. Don't do that. But with that disclaimer issued, I don't know that I think priests should retire. I when I was a kid, my parents always told me that they thought retirement was not a Christian concept because we never, um, you know, we're never God has never done calling us to apostolic work, especially even if, if your life is ministry. Now I'm not. I, I, I get it. Like, you shouldn't. Even if we meant you don't, you shouldn't be a pastor after seventy five or sure. seventy or whatever it is. No, no, no. You you but lose your administrative like, you, brief after like, a certain but, age. Fine. But the notion of like now you just go off and play golf. Yeah, maybe that isn't healthy. I, yeah. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy for anyone. But I think anyway, if you're yeah. if you're if you're a priest like that, you're not just you, you, the the ministry is not your job. It's not your day job. It's your identity. You are marked with an indelible character. It confers an identity or priestly ordination. And so I think the idea is like, well, yeah, I put in my ears, and uh, now I'm going to start wearing golf shirts and you know hanging out at the club, and you know it's like I'll do some weddings and stuff. But yeah, and I've also known priests. I think it's weird, and also like what you're going to get an apartment. Like, give me a break. It's like if I my again. Unpopular opinion. I'm not saying that, that what I think should be a rule. People are free to disagree. I just think those guys should be living in a parish. They should be living in communion with common life with the youngers because also they are a huge source of institutional memory and ministerial experience. At the very least, I would say this. I've also known priests for whom what should be an eschatological zeal has been replaced by a retirement zeal. That Rather than looking forward to the eschaton, I've known priests who hit a certain point in their ministry and then are just looking, looking to retirement, looking to retirement, looking to retirement, thinking about building a place, thinking about getting a place, talking about getting a place. 
and um, and that I don't think is probably healthy either. And then I know I've known guys who really have struggled when they hit that point because it's sort of everything falls. So I, I, I mean, in a sense, this, this is a problem that is going to address itself because yeah. no one who's our generation is going to retire unless they're fabulously wealthy. And <laughs> every priest pension fund in this country is going bankrupt hand over fist. So there will be no priest. Father, if you're listening, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but there will be no priest pension plan for you when you retire if you are currently under 50. Like you just won't I, be one. And you and I very honestly are going to be talking to each other once a week. It could be for the rest of our lives. Um Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the, Speaking I mean, of which, I, it's you know, let's let, let, let let's just have some straight talk here for a second. When I say I hope the pillar is the last job I ever have, it's because it's the only job I can conceivably see us continuing to do in one form or another for the rest of our lives. In our, in our and there is days. absolutely no way I'm ever going to be able to retire. So I need a job I can do when I'm well into my seventies or up. Speaking of which, uh, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by our friends at Seton Home Study School. That's right. Um, in addition to offering full school enrollment for homeschooling Catholic parents and families and students, they also sell and publish uh, individual textbooks and course materials so the parents can just buy something like an English book if they want to supplement their kids' education or improve their grammar skills at home. They have a curriculum that they take great pride in and I think it's fabulous. Incorporates the Catholic faith into the study of every single subject. So it's not just, you know, religion as a sidecar. It's, you know, it's Catholic education with Catholic underpinning the whole um, entire program of study, which I think is great. They have a tuition structure that's a fraction of the cost of most other Catholic schools, so that it, you know, it really does make the possibility of Catholic education open to pretty much everyone, hopefully. That, you know, if you live far, far away from a good Catholic school, and you still want to have the benefits of a Catholic education, this is a resource that's there for you. I think it's great. They're they're long-term friends of the show, and I hope they will continue to be. But I, you know, as I've said before, I know people who use Seton. I know their kids who are educated with Seton, and they are pretty great kids. Seton incorporates the Catholic faith into everything they do. They aim to make it easy for parents to um, uh, make it easy and possible for parents to homeschool their kids, and they then they aim to make it easy and possible for Catholics in all kinds of other situations to have. Um, access to real Catholic resources and a real Catholic education. If you want to learn more about Seton, um, you can go to setonhome.org and you can sign up for their Beginner's Guide to Seton. There's a sign-up form right on their webpage, and right there you can check off that you heard about Seton from J.D. and Ed at the Pillar Podcast. There's also an eight-minute video on their webpage that can really explain to you um, everything that Seton offers and how it might be useful to your family or why it might be a good idea to recommend or encourage at your parish. So Seton Home Study School, check it out at seatonhome.org. Do it. And we're back. And Ed, before we move on, I know that you're really keen to talk about something that I, um, something that nobody's talking about that I want to talk about that you think I'm all hot under the collar about. And I am a little hot under the collar about it. But before I do that, I would be remiss if I didn't throw a curveball at you. Um, oh. Maybe you saw the curveball coming. I don't know. But um, I'd be remiss if I didn't just say this. We have been talking about Alex Crow, and when we talk about a person like Alex Crow, I just feel the need to say this. The pillar is a mechanism of public accountability in the life of the church, and on this show, we often talk about things from a canonical perspective, which means we talk about interesting or unusual canonical cases, most of which are difficult canonical cases. You were telling me the other day about a friend of yours who um, is feeling kind of discouraged because a priest in their orbit just, you know, was, um, was 
turned out to sort of have been found out to have done some very bad things and they were feeling discouraged. And um, we were just talking about the risk that people have of sort of, if they only learn about the priesthood from like, if they only read about priests in the pillar or they only read about priests in the media for that matter, there's a danger that they'll sort of form a perception of priests as sort of as a class, more having a greater propensity towards grave misconduct of various kinds. Um, we write about priests who commit, and bishops for that matter, who commit grave kinds of misconduct because we have a, a function of public accountability and we think that's important. We think it helps the church to be reformed. But my own experience of the American clerical caste, so to speak, is that I'm so grateful that many of my friends are priests. Um, many, many of my friends are priests. I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful that 99% of the priests that I know are like good good men who I'm glad to know and good men who I'm glad to have around my kids and good men who I'm glad to have influential on my kids. And not just because they make the Eucharist and I need the Eucharist and not just because they forgive sins and I need my sins forgiven or I need my kids baptized or that kind of thing, but because the men I know who are priests are often really, really good men. And I just, I, it may seem like I'm oversaying it or maybe it seems like I'm pandering to our clerical audience. I don't know, but um, I just don't want to leave people with the impression that um, Alex Crow is the norm and not the exception. Um, now, with that said, I do think there are things about clerical culture that sometimes make, like, I do think there are things about clerical culture that sometimes make mental health, addressing mental health issues a challenge, that some, I do think there are elements of clerical culture that reward people with narcissistic personality disorders, and I think that narcissism, I've said this before, I think that narcissism is the most dangerous undercurrent in the, in the, in, in, in the presbyterate, and narcissistic priests do a tremendous amount of damage and those kinds of things. So I'm not saying like priests are all good always all the time, except for this one guy. I think American clerical culture is in need of many serious and systematic reforms. And I think the mechanism of assigning priests and forming them is in need of serious and systematic and thoughtful reforms. But um, I just don't want to sort of uh, talk about Alex Crow without first, without subsequently saying um, that I I'm grateful for the priests that are in my own life. And uh, for the most part, I mean, some of them are jerks or annoying or weird or whatever, but I'm grateful for some for many priests that I have in my life because I'm grateful for to have them uh, for who they are as men and as friends. You know what I mean? I do, and I think it's important to say. Hi everyone, producer Kate here. I'm so sorry, but we had a couple technical issues with the last section of this episode, so unfortunately, I have to cut it short. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by Seton Home Study School. To find out if Seton is right for your family, check it out at seatonhome.org. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, an Ed and JD production. Your host is JD Flynn, and he is joined by his podcasting partner, Ed Condon. We'll see you next week.